again to the Conversations That Matter podcast. My name is John Harris, and I am joined today with Dr. Sam Smith, who is the department chair in history at Liberty University. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Smith. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, Glad to be here. And uh, Liberty University, if you want to just give me a little bit, like a 30-second synopsis of what Liberty University is, what the Department of History it is, what makes it unique, and what your role here is, that would be great. Liberty University uh, was founded in uh, 1971, uh, and I came here 15 years ago as a history professor. I've been the chair of the department for the last three years, and I've been the director of the graduate program for the last 10 years. I'm still both of those uh, today. Uh, It's very unique in that, especially on the graduate side, we're the only, uh, that I know of, master's program in history Uh, that's from a fully accredited university that uh, teaches history from a conservative, and I mean theologically conservative, uh, evangelical perspective. And uh, we think that's unique. We think it's special. And uh, a lot of students come to this program because of that. Yeah. What motivated you when you were choosing programs uh, in undergrad to be a historian? I started out as a biblical studies major, and that's actually what my undergraduate degree is in, in in Bible. I went to Bob Jones University, and uh, I did a history minor. And I started uh, really falling in love with history because of a couple of historians that were there. Dr. Edward Panosian was uh, our teacher for Western Civilization. Still to this day, the best history teacher I've ever seen. Uh, he absolutely captivated uh, his audience, the students. This is in a big lecture hall. Yeah. But I remember here I am, a freshman in college, and I had gone to a big public school. Uh, didn't really like academics that much. I kind of went to Bob Jones. That's what was expected in, in our family. Uh, all of my siblings went there as well. Um, I wasn't really interested in history until I got to college. And he made it come alive to me. And uh, I remember sitting there. They actually had bells. I remember (laughs) sitting there. When the bell would ring, I would be so disappointed uh, because I was so, it was like watching a movie to me. And that really got me started on an interest in history. And I I minored in history there. And then later I did a, a master's in church history. Uh, at Bob Jones and then uh, taught in high school and was an administrator for some 10 years and then I went back to the University of South Carolina to do a PhD in history. So you're at a Christian university mm-hmm. studying history. How did you see the your faith or since then how have you seen your faith influence your study of history? I tell people I, I, I really became a historian kind of through the back door of theology. My first you know, other than these freshman classes, I started taking courses on the, the history of doctrine, uh, history of Christianity. And so my faith, my interest in my faith, plus how it is in the context of, of the larger spectrum of history, really started drawing me in. And I, I felt like the study of history was actually nourishing my faith uh, because I was, I, was check, I was seeing uh, how others had gone through you know, different struggles uh, in the church and so forth. So when I eventually went to do a PhD in history, American history, early American history at the University of South Carolina, uh, I knew what I wanted to write on. I knew what I wanted to study. 
evangelicalism and Christianity in the in the colonial South. That's really kind of what I I focused on in my, in my research, and uh, I you know it's it's something that that still is is my greatest interest. The role of Christianity in American history it to me is fascinating. Hmm. Uh, there's there's all kinds of very interesting characters uh, <laughs> in this sure. topic. It, it, it really is a fun area to study in American history. Yeah, and I want to take this opportunity to plug both your website and where you blog occasionally mm-hmm. um, and uh, and your book or where people can find you. So what what's the website? Website's called A Cautious Enthusiasm. It's the same title of, of my book that uh, published on Southern Evangelicalism in Colonial South Carolina, the University of South Carolina Press. And um, I had started it a long time ago, wrote a few things, and then quit. And then my my son kind of encouraged me to start writing some things. And so it's kind of a mixture of politics, religion, history. Uh, Sometimes I write blogs when I'm uh, you know, a little upset about something that's ha- that has happened. Uh, I think that motivates most of our blog posts. <laughs> yeah. Is uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so I wanted to ask you because um, some of the things that we're going to be talking about are related to things you've already written about mm-hmm. on your blog, mm-hmm. uh, and and I wanted to specifically talk about social justice and how that should or should not influence your study of history. Mm-hmm. So. As a Christian historian, should social justice in its modern form influence the way that we look at the past? Well, I think a lot of things influence the way we look at the past. I mean, there's 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 no way to completely free ourselves of the biases and the intentions that, and the agendas that we have. We're human beings, and, and that's, that's the way it is. We have certain biases that we'll probably never get rid of. On the other hand, I think the most important thing uh, in writing history and researching history is to recognize that and to recognize it as a potential danger mm-hmm. uh, when you are trying to find out what happened in the past and why. Uh, I have no problem with a person wanting to do, you know, participate in social justice activities, even if I don't agree with their pr- perspective on it. What I do have a problem with, especially as a Christian historian, and something I see happening with Christian historians is conflating social justice principles with the gospel itself. To me, that's exceedingly dangerous. The gospel is too precious to mix even good things into it, right? Right. Secondly, uh, as a historian, uh, I have a problem with conflating any kind of agenda-driven motivation into the study of history. That is making it a part of what I'm doing as, a, as the front and center of what I'm trying to accomplish. And the reason for that is, and that's for people on the right and the left, if you have an agenda and you're trying to push that agenda, it will inevitably you know, cause you to take your eye off the ball. Because you start looking for evidence that supports your thesis before you've done enough research to see if it's a legitimate thesis. And now, that's one of the major dangers of you know conflating historical 
investigation with something like social justice. Now, it sounds like, it, from my just theological training, and I'm sure you understand the difference mm -hmm. between exegesis and eisegesis, right. mm -hmm. it almost sounds like what you're saying is the tendency is when you want something like social justice to motivate the discipline that you're engaged in, like history, right. it becomes eisegetical. So you start quote mining the past for a preconceived idea is that am i tracking with so you it's the same i think it's almost exactly the same principle okay uh, so uh, an exegete takes the passage and tries to take out what is what is actually meant there not presupposing a certain theological position and then imposing it on that and trying to uh you know find your theological position on it any good systematic theology should start with exegesis. In other words, it has to be exegeted out of the passage for it to then be systematized uh, in, you know, right. as, as doctrine. If you get that mixed up, if you start with systematic theology and not with exegesis of the Bible, I think you're doing the same thing that a, uh, a historian is doing if he goes to history with, i got to find something that's really going to mm -hmm. uh, bolster up my view on what should be done today about whatever's going on in society. Then you start cherry, pick, cherry picking history, looking at things that support what you what you believe in. And again, there's nothing wrong with a person believing in certain things. There's certain things in society that do need to be fixed. But when you start using a, a, your discipline, like history, to inform the what I call the aughts what ought to be instead of what happened, right. why did it happen, uh, and that, you know those basic questions that you have to ask of a, of a historical document or when you're reading a secondary source um, instead of what, do, what, what should have happened or how can I manipulate history to uh, have this result for today. You know, historians used to call that presentism. You're, you're focusing on the present and then using the, the lens of the present to interpret the past and it always gets it mixed up. Yeah, I want to get more into presentism, um, but just to, to sort of finalize what we're talking about now, um, it, it sounds like there with the social justice movement uh, in its modern form at least, there's a theological problem. So they mm -hmm. create a paradigm and this paradigm created for the historical discipline ends up forcing them or motivating them to mm -hmm. go into the past and to quote mine or to to just find things that are going to um, support a preconceived notion of what mm -hmm. the ought what the world ought to be like right, right. Um, and so you have a it sounds like a theological problem and a historical problem with with trying to in, insert social justice into history um, and I want to explore I guess both of those uh, you had written in a blog post on your website, mm -hmm. The Cautious Enthusiasm. Uh, the title of the blog post is History and Social Justice Activism. And this is a quote from you. You say that you've noticed a leftist trajectory, and specifically at a conference on faith and history uh, that you've attended over the past 15 years. Uh, what do you attribute leftist historiography infiltrating Christian circles to? Uh, if you really do a study of evangelicalism itself, um, especially when you study the, the, the modernist uh, fundamentalist controversy uh, and then the emergence of what was called neo-evangelicalism or new evangelicalism with things like the founding of Fuller Theological Seminary, uh, 
There has been for many years among Christian academics an insatiable desire to be accepted, hmm. uh, to be accepted in the academy. And it is kind of the nature of the academy. You, you've got to make certain impressions. You want to get things published uh, and so forth. And so there's been this uh, amazing, you know, almost, I would say, unhealthy desire to be approved by the larger academy. Now, I understand that. Being an academic, I understand the contours of that. Uh, but I think it has gone uh, way too far uh, among a lot of, I think, evangelical, good, and some of them are friends of mine, uh, evangelical historians who are so oriented toward being recognized within the larger academy uh, that they know, they know that they cannot be conservative or vocally conservative uh, and still get the recognition, or rarely so. There's some rare exceptions uh, out there. So there's a sense of hesitancy that I see, uh, as I've noticed going to Conference on Faith and History that I really like. I still go, I still take undergraduate students there. I think it's profitable. Uh, I like the people there. Although I have seen, uh, you know, over the past 15 years that I've been attending uh, a sense of going in a more, more and more progressive uh, direction. I really saw that in this last meeting. Yeah. Uh, that, do you, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Because I, I know the keynote speech, I think, was the thing that yeah, we, we wrote about. We took 10 undergraduate students. Uh, uh, to give papers uh, at this conference. I think we had more undergraduates there than any other school except maybe one. Um, and it was a very good conference, a lot of good feedback, but they had a, a keynote speaker for the undergraduate portion of the conference, Jamar Tisby, uh, who, as you uh, know, has come out with a book, uh, The Color of Compromise, which I have not read, but I, I did hear him speak, and his keynote address was to specifically for these undergraduate budding historians <laughs> and this is and, and his whole point was you know here's how here's how you can do history right right and it, it was laced with this you know heavy emphasis on you know do history as a project for social justice to you know to make people aware it was a whole you know the whole woke idea of uh, you know, waking up to the problems uh, in society and using history to sort of engineer a greater social justice projects. Yeah. Uh, and now, again, social justice efforts, I'm, I'm fine with that. But conflating it with the historical discipline, I'm not fine with that. I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's good for the discipline. Uh, and I would say the same thing if I had gone to a really conservative conference and the guy had gotten up there and talked about how we need to use the historical discipline to fight whatever, you know, conservative social justice perspective you might be presenting. I may agree with those perspectives, but to take history and make it this instrument for an agenda-driven uh, project, I think really neuters history for what it is. Yeah. And here's why, I, I wanna, I wanna yeah. emphasize this. History, when done well, okay, and, and we all want to do it well, we struggle, you know, to do it right, right. Right. When done well speaks for itself. It doesn't need our, what I would call, Whiggish help. 
to 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 move it into a realm to do this or that for whatever our social needs are. Uh, John Lukash, a great historian uh, that I really like, he said history is all we know. And you think about it, it really is. It, it's all we know. Even as Christians, we, we know what's going to happen in the future, but we know that because of our study of the scripture, which was written in the past. Right. Uh, and so this idea that I have to do something for history, I, can, I need to use history for something other than letting history speak for itself, uh, I think really weakens history. Now, I don't mean by that that we don't interpret history. History is about interpretation. You have to interpret it, or otherwise we would just sit around and read primary source documents all the time. Right. <laughs> so we have to interpret it, but we need to interpret it faithfully, you know, by the, you know, the what I would think of as the rules of the discipline. Yeah. You know, don't let documents <clears throat> say more than what they actually say. Now, I want to push back a little bit on that, uh, just to play devil's advocate for a moment, mm -hmm. if I can. Now, shouldn't, I mean, you said it initially, you gained some inspiration from the study of history. These characters right. of the past, they fascinate you. Yep. And when we look at the past, we're going to see villains and we're going to see heroes and all the range that comes in between that. Uh, should not those things, the bad things that happened in the past, mm -hmm. the things that we say that should not have happened, like let's say the Holocaust, shouldn't right. we learn from that? Shouldn't we look back and say, well, that ought not to have happened? Um, I don't know that that's what the social justice advocates are necessarily saying, but mm -hmm. it sounds like that to most people. Right. They're just saying that we shouldn't have had slavery. We shouldn't have, racism was a bad thing. Uh, you know, sex, the long list, right? So what's wrong with that? History is, a, is one of the best teachers there is. And in no way am I saying that it does not inform on how we should do things. It informs, it gives context to everything, right? It gives context to it. What I'm talking about is the actual process of research and writing as, as an agenda to accomplish something in the present, I don't think is the role of the historian. Right because you're you're missing the point of history history is about what happened and why now once it's written once it's done and we see what happened in the holocaust we see what happened uh you know in slavery and so forth we can be informed of that and it and it can help us to to say wow i don't want that to happen right we don't want to repeat that history is wonderful at teaching that but i think that's different i think that's different than using it as a tool on the front end, especially uh, of interpretation, of going into it with that perspective. One of the best lessons I got on this was years ago when I was in graduate school, uh, Dr. Clyde Wilson invited me to go with him and a, and a historian who was researching at the University of South Carolina in the papers of Henry Lawrence. I worked in the papers of Henry Lawrence. Uh, it's a uh, paper project of uh, Henry Lawrence, a great a South Carolina founder, one of the early presidents of the Continental Congress. Uh, and he was a slave owner, right? Well, this uh, professor was there, and he was uh, researching Henry Lawrence. And Dr. Clyde Wilson took him out for lunch and wanted to know if I wanted to go with him. So I said, sure. So we're sitting there, and so I asked this professor, uh, I said, so, what do you want to argue about Henry Lawrence? Because I had seen him in there going through Lawrence papers and everything. 
And he said, I don't know. That's why I'm here reading the letters. Yeah. And, of course, Dr. Wilson reminded this graduate student, uh, you don't get yeah. uh, your thesis before you do your research, son. You know, that kind of thing. And, and that was a tremendous lesson uh, that, you know, he's there reading through the papers to find what did Lawrence say, what was his perspective, et cetera. And yeah. uh, that, just that little conversation was something that really hit me. Uh, that you don't get the cart before the horse. Uh, That's a good story. Yeah, you know, when you're doing history. Now, I love, as you know, uh, Herbert Butterfield and his uh, little book, The Whig Interpretation of History. Uh, I actually read it uh, for a class on the philosophy of history. I was first introduced to it, I believe, by Dr. Wilson. Uh, and uh, I use this book in, in my capstone history class to remind students about what are some of the do's and don'ts about the historical discipline? Hmm. And one of the chapters in that book is is on moral judgments. Uh, now, in no way does Butterfield say you never make moral judgments. That's impossible, right? Right. You look at things, you know Hitler was not good, uh, you know a lot of things. Uh, but, he said, you don't, in so many words, you don't use history as a bludgeon uh, to beat people up in the past, to use it as this tool of moral judgment. In other words, you let history speak for itself. You tell the truth, and then it will do the work that it needs to do. Uh, so the, the whole idea of using history for moral judgment is taking what Butterfield said, a shortcut through history. Interesting. Uh, you're you're, you're, you're kind of getting past, you're trying to treat history as this simple line that I'm sitting here in 2019, and I can judge somebody in 1819, uh, you know, by my, you know, the standards that I have, uh, you know, that I've lived on, yeah, under, you know, my circumstances. And he, he just points out that that's dangerous. And one of the things Butterfield says is that he, he doesn't say history is not a, you know, a linear event. It is, but it's not a simple linear event. It's mm -hmm. a complex he called it a labyrinthine network of millions and billions of connections. Uh, and, and, the, and the role of the historian is to try to figure out that web, try to figure out the whole uh, perspective, you know, and, and, and make sense of the complexity. Gotcha. Right? Yeah. Well, if you, if you take these shortcuts in the study of history, you're missing the complexity. Now, I haven't told you this, but I have, um, I, I think we're heading towards, or we might even be in, of course, history, when we, we come downstream from that, we'll find out which one it is, but I think we're possibly in somewhat of a postmodernist crisis, and I'm, I'm using that term because I'm comparing it to the modernist crisis in which disciplines um, from the, the sciences, scientific Darwinism, uh, higher criticism, so applying the scientific method to texts, kind of came into the church and you had the fundamentalists kind of break away and form their own um, organizations and institutions. And then you had um, the, those who were pushing for more progressive interpretations and trying to marry that with scripture, kind of holding on to the institutions mm -hmm. that were there. Mm -hmm. And I think at the time, they didn't really think that they were 
challenging the Bible. They probably thought they were protecting it. We're going to take science and we're going to make sure that it can be integrated with the Bible and that there's really no contradiction. Mm -hmm. Evolution and the Bible go together. Um, And so um, now we're going into another crisis, I think. This is my own. I haven't heard anyone say this, but it's the disciplines of history and sociology and these other things that are coming in and they're providing a new final authority. And it's not the scientific method, Mm -hmm. but um, as you, I think, pointed out earlier in the discipline of history, it's almost using history as this uh, way to um, to tell to, to tell the story from the side of the perspective that you want it told. So right. from the side of the oppressed, perhaps, or right. the aggrieved people. Right. And so truth doesn't matter as much, in my opinion. It's it's um, trying to take down these institutions of power, and mm-hmm. um, you know we're on this trajectory of um, ever more becoming better and better and more egalitarian. And, and now that's creeping into the church. And, and that's that's kind of the way that I've seen this. So it's very serious in my mind. Um, do, do you think I'm off on that? Do you agree with that? No, I do think that that's happening. And I think postmodernism is part of the, the story. I mean, 20 years ago, I sat in a, in a kind of a mock interview. We were doing a, several graduate students on, you know, how to do interviews for jobs. And we were counseled by one professor, never use the word truth. Wow! Don't say truth <laughs> uh, because it makes you sound like you're you're really you know you're arrogant or or something like that. And this is a historian <laughs> talking about this, so you know. Wow! Because uh, you know he he was afraid that if you use that word, uh, people would label you as some sort of absolutist or something like that. So uh, I actually sat and and heard that. Uh, you know. The whole idea of truth as a social construct is 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 alive and well in the historical discipline. I think we're seeing it in more and more in politics. I think we're seeing it in a lot of areas. I I say to people, I dread the day when surgeons become postmodernists uh, <laughs> because yeah, uh, you know this whole idea that truth is kind of you know it's what you make it. Uh, Etc. So, yeah, yeah. I, it it I seems like there's a pre-thought uh, or a pre, um, an idea that they already have, like a social justice warrior about what you said before, what it ought to look like, um, and then the historical discipline just becomes the tool to kind of like a hammer mm-hmm. to to um, try to take. Hey, you're you're one of these uh, privileged classes, and in the past you did this, so I'm going to use this hammer of history mm-hmm. to label all the guilt of the past onto you that's what i'm seeing at least right. in the historical discipline and um and so that and that does change the narrative uh so it changes it uh tremendously yeah uh and and really turns it on its head uh in many ways and the truth gets i think lost somewhere uh, yeah in that project and that's where we get color of compromise the idea that there's this you know, this Compromise can be reduced down to this color, your color of your skin or, or the church or some institution. That it's always compromising. Um, so I wanted to ask you, so this is, a, I think, a question that uh, a lot of Christians have who start studying the past. We look at men like Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, perhaps even Robert Louis Dabney, mm-hmm. and we find out that these men were men of their time. They owned mm-hmm. slaves. They were not egalitarian. Um, in the, the case of Dabney, he supported the Confederacy. And 
maybe we respected these guys, but now there's a lot of second guessing going on. Mm -hmm. Should we respect these guys? Were they even really Christians? That's been brought up now by prominent evangelical leaders to say, well, I don't think Edwards could have been a Christian or it's in doubt. Um, in fact, I've heard some prominent evangelicals say that it's, it's uh, more, they're more confident Martin Luther King Jr. is a Christian mm -hmm. than Jonathan Edwards because he owns slaves. Uh, well, well, I hadn't heard that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, um, I can definitely give you some citations afterward, but uh, I don't want to name names in, in this particular interview necessarily um, as far as that goes. But but there, it's more than one person that's saying this. And even if you just go to social media and mm -hmm. type in Jonathan Edwards slavery, you're going to find a list of people that are denouncing Edwards. So what do we as historians uh how do, how do we view that? How do we tell that story? How should we think of these men from the past? Should we still respect them or should we throw them overboard? Well, uh, let me start by saying this. I think that what you just described is, again, both a theological and a historical problem. Uh, to say that someone is not a Christian because they own slaves or something like that, uh, is is just ludicrous. I mean, the, the whole idea that, that we're going to be, uh, you know, perfect individuals because we're, we're Christians uh, is, is not biblical. I mean, there's all kind. I mean, you have slave ownership is, has, has existed time immemorial. Uh, that doesn't make it right. Uh, it, we live in a, I'm thankful we live in an in a age where it's not normalized in our society. These people did not live in an age where slavery was not normalized. It was normalized. And it had existed not just their lifetime, but their parents' lifetimes, their grandparents' lifetimes, and they you know, stepped into this world with this. Now, does that in any way take away from the fact that I think that slavery is a, a good or bad thing? It's obviously a bad thing. Uh, I think it violates biblical principles. I think it violates uh, doing to others as you would have them do unto you. But I live in an age where it's not normalized, right? And I and I feel like that I'm, uh, you know, fortunate mm. to live in an age where that's not normalized. However, uh, to to prejudge people like Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Dabney, uh, you know. James Henley Thornwell, whoever you want to say, some of these great and godly men who love the Lord and who were clearly uh, passionate for the gospel, yet this was this was uh, the world that they lived in, I think is to, again, misunderstand theology and to misunderstand uh, the contours of history. Because uh, you can do this. I mean, slavery is not the only sin. There's all kinds of <laughs> That's things right. yeah. uh, that, that people you know, are caught up in that, that they may have done or that we look at today and go, wow, how, how could you do that? Yeah. Uh, and so I think, it's, uh, I think we need to, to have a, a sense. History teaches us to appreciate the differences between now and then maybe uh, and not to use it to prejudge them on our own uh, standards today. As a Christian, I would certainly be against slavery. I think yeah, I think it would, and I'm thankful that uh, it doesn't exist in our society, except for we know slavery is in certain uh, yeah. societies still in other places. But um, you know, to to think that 
you know, they're not Christians and so forth, I just think is... I've often thought if Edwards or any of these guys came to our time, they yeah. would be just horrified yeah. at the level of pornography, the easy access to abortion, mm -hmm. uh, perhaps, or just even the, just the general depravity in culture that we don't, we're, we're tuned out because we're so used to it. Um, commercials, even sexualization of, mm -hmm. of women and so forth. And um, if they were to judge us by the standards of their day, mm -hmm. we would not meet the test, probably in a worse way than they didn't meet, you know, yeah, and, the test we're ascribing uh, I to I heard them. Uh, Dr. Tom Kidd give a talk at a conference on faith and history um, at Regent University, and it was um, on his study of George Whitfield. He came out with a book on, you know, biography of George Whitfield, and he talked about Whitfield and slavery. And he said something very interesting in this talk. Uh, you know, he, he pointed out the bad parts, right? Right. But he made a comment. He said, uh, you know, let's admit something here. If we had been living in George Whitfield's age, chances are really good we would have had the same perspective as he had. Uh, and, and Interesting. That's a good historical observation. Yeah. That's a that's an observation that says, yeah, I understand, uh, because history is about trying to understand these people, not judge them. Right. History will judge them. You you don't. It doesn't need your help. Right. But to understand them, why? How did they get to that point? And that's when you can actually, I think, learn from history. You start understanding it, and then you say, I don't want it to be that way in the present. That's fine. That's a good segue to my next question, which is if someone listening wants to know more about history, specifically American history, their Christian heritage, church history, um, I would include in this, they're a layman, what mm -hmm. books would you recommend them looking into? Uh, first, let me start with, I think they it would be very helpful if they would read some primary source documents. Like Good point. Uh, founding documents even in the colonial era. Uh, the 1606 uh, Charter of Virginia, for example. Uh, and, you know, the Massachusetts uh, Bay Charter. Um, Connecticut's Charter under Thomas Hooker. And if, especially when you're talking about American Christian heritage, uh, understanding where a lot of these colonies and how their perspective of how and why they started. Mm. Uh, I think is very instructive, but also into uh, the late colonial period and into the revolutionary period. Reading, uh, you know, a lot of the founders, even some of the lesser known founders, have papers at different universities. I mentioned the papers of Henry Lawrence. Uh, you can go to, uh, you know, the University of Virginia, and, and there is the papers of James Madison. Uh, I'm sorry, Princeton has James yeah. Madison's papers, and uh, Jefferson's papers are at a couple of different places, including UVA. Uh, go in and read these, uh, you know, the writings of the founders. And that's not to say that they're Christians or not, it's to say you really get the sense they lived in a society that understood itself as being, uh, you know, a Judeo-Christian culture, right? So let, let me um, sort of fine tune the question. So I'm a Christian layman and you know I, I'm a farmer or whatever and I just don't have time to go into archives. Mm -hmm. uh, three primary sources and let's say two secondary sources mm -hmm. for understanding American Christian heritage. So you already mentioned two primary sources. 
Um, so give, give me a third one and then what, two secondary sources. Uh, well, I would say uh, the papers of Henry Lawrence is a good place. I, my first published article was on his Christian life. I knew nothing about Henry Lawrence when I started reading uh, in his papers at the University of South Carolina. It's really what kind of blossomed into my dissertation, mm. studying his Christian perspective, which I didn't really know until I started reading him. Um, as far as secondary sources, uh, I'm reading a book right now, and you know you're reading the book too, Daniel Dreisbach's book, Reading the Bible with the Founders. Yeah, I've read it. Yeah. Uh, I think is uh, really has a gives you a good solid foundation on the use of the Bible among the founders and and how it was pervasive, and how it has and how that perspective has been ignored. Hmm. Uh, Mark David Hall has written a biography on Roger Sherman. Uh, Jeffrey uh, Morrison uh, has written on John Witherspoon and these are Christian historians who I think have you know I, I mentioned how a lot of Christian historians are a little hesitant about you know their conclusions hmm. uh, but you know Daniel Dreisbach, Mark David Hall especially those two uh, maybe it's because they have tenure I don't know but uh, <laughs> they're they're pretty bold in yeah. their proclamation that hey What's happened to the historical discipline? They're not paying attention to the pervasive uh, nature of, of Christianity and the Bible in American history. Yeah. Uh, and to me, that's much more effective than trying to, you know, say all the founders were Christians because we know they weren't. Uh, but to say, how did they use the Bible? What was their perspective on the Bible? Uh, not necessarily how many of them were evangelicals or not. Some were, some were not. But what was their overall posture toward the Christian faith uh, mm -hmm. as it was presented to them, and and so I think that's a you know a, a good way a good place to start. Biography uh, to me, I love to read biography. I love to read uh, to take a person and and sort of see how history unfolds around them. Yeah, uh, and to take a Christian like a John Witherspoon or a Roger Sherman. Uh, and kind of see how history, you know, and how it contextualizes their life is a fun way to do history. Is, is that the same advice you'd give to, a, say, a high school student who wants to get into the historical field and study? Would you give those same resources or you have additional advice? Uh, I would say one thing with, uh, you know, high school historians is that they should really try to study world history. Really? As a basic, yeah, because uh, especially if they want, let's say they want to be an American historian. Right. I tell people start with world history hmm. uh, because it provides this larger context. I think of history as when you're first getting started, you want to lay foundations and then you want to build up. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you get a little more uh, focused as you go. Right. But if you try to start with colonial America and you don't have a foundation in European history and world history, colonial America is not going to make a whole lot of sense uh, because you're, you're just not con history is all about context it's all about context Yeah. what happened before what you're studying now yeah. uh, will help you understand what you're studying now. But it so, sounds an awful lot like a preacher telling someone, an aspiring preacher, get to know the Bible before right. you go to seminary and learn Greek. You just right. get to know the general context. Yep, get the so. general contours. 
of world history, Western civilization, uh, and then start working your way into. Now, sometimes you can do it backwards. You can you can do it and, and go, wow. Let's find out what's happening in England at the same time as the revolution. Right. You know, and those kind. One of the most one of the most instructive things that I experienced in graduate school is I took a, a graduate reading seminar uh, on colonial America. So I'm fully expecting to go in there. We're going to study all the colonial documents and so forth. And the teacher stood up and said, we're not going to study colonial America from the from these shores. We're going to study it from England. I bet that was interesting. It was fascinating. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that's a different take. And so most of the things we read were from the other side. Wow. And it gave me a context, right, for... Uh, colonial American history that I just would not have had, I think, if I had not, if the teacher had not had that kind of creative approach uh, to the study. Now, what is your favorite historical figure, other than a Bible character, if you had one to choose from to, to say, that's my guy or girl? <laughs> well, that's a hard one. I actually have two. Okay. I they're, knew you'd say more than and, one and, somehow. And they're very different. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, one is Thomas Jefferson. I'm fascinated with Thomas Jefferson uh, on many levels. Uh, he would, honestly, he's one of the most brilliant people I've ever encountered in studying history. Brilliant in languages, brilliant in law, brilliant mm -hmm. in political science, brilliant in history, uh, music, architecture. I mean, he is, he, he really lived in an age that had this idea to bring all of learning in your orb hmm. uh, and to, so to study him is a fascinating experience um, but when you study him you you realize that he really wanted to be the common man's president right now I think Jackson was more of a common man's president than Jefferson yeah but Jackson thought of himself as Jeffersonian and that's part of where he gets some of his common man mystique but uh, Jefferson really, I mean, you look at even at his uh, gravestone that he designed and put on there, there's nothing known there about him being president of the United States. Yeah. You know, he didn't want to, that's really not what he wanted to be known for. Now, we would think, wow, that's the most important thing he did. <laughs> yeah. I don't think he thought that was the most important thing he did. Now, his last couple of years were kind of, you know, on the downside uh, as president, but still, you know, he wanted to be known as the founder of the University of Virginia and the, yeah. you know, the author of the uh, religious statute or, or the Virginia statute on religious liberty, uh, Declaration of Independence, etc. But and yeah. so I, I, I see a, a sort of a humility in the man. Yeah, uh, that really strikes me. Before uh, you get to your second uh, okay. character, I just I have to sort of interject this. Um, historians can be arrogant. Uh, those who are uh, who've made it, but that's yeah, anyone who's made a sure. PhD, not just historians. Right. Um, but but what you said about Jefferson that he he was so accomplished and yet didn't want to be known as president of the United States. I mean that, that's I'm tracking with that. I want to be someone who no matter how much I accomplish, I look at my life and I say, well, first I'm I'm a sinner in need of grace. I'm mm -hmm. a child of God, and then. I'm, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm, mm -hmm. you know, these, these are my roles, my primary roles. Right, right. And a historian or any discipline, anything I accomplish, that's kind of secondary to these roles that God has ordained. Um, and, I, and I think you feel that way as well, and that's probably what attracts you to Jefferson. 
I would think. Yeah, uh, my understanding after he finished, you know, writing the Declaration of Independence, he he wanted to get back to Virginia to uh-huh. do the real, the most important work in helping them to form a constitution, because he knew if you declare independence, you've got yeah. to, your states have to have uh, their own, uh, you know. That was bigger to him than the that Declaration. Was, I think it was in yeah. some ways possibly bigger to him yeah. uh, to do that. And so, uh, and, and I'll tell you something else about Jefferson that I really appreciate. He, he under, I don't think he was an evangelical Christian. I hope he, you know, made things right with the Lord before he died, but yeah. I don't know that. Uh, but, you know, he understood something about religion that a lot of people didn't understand, including Christians. And and thus he is the author of the you know Virginia Statute on Religious Liberty. He understood something basic about religion. It has to be volitional. You can't force people hmm. to believe something. And this was at the core of Jefferson's view of religion, that it that, that it's not something that can be forced. Now, you know whatever you know his perspectives were on you know the faith and so forth. That's one thing, but he understood that. And a lot of people, even Christian people, don't fully understand that as well as he did. Yeah. And so I really appreciate him for that. And a lot of other things. I do too. Who's the second character? More of a modern figure. Uh, Jay Gresham Machen. I wasn't expecting yeah. that. Yeah, Jay Gresham Machen. Uh, I, when I was a, a student taking beginning Greek, we used Machen's uh, book on uh, Greek for beginners. That was my introduction. Wow. To <laughs> the Greek uh, textbook. And then I kept hearing uh, professors talk about this Machen guy. And I thought, well, I've, I've been studying his Greek, well, Greek book, textbook. So I started reading Machen and I read uh, Christianity and Liberalism, mm-hmm. which to me is one of the greatest books ever written in American history. Okay, now I got to read it. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's so clear, accessible, straightforward, but powerful. And it's and the title is telling, Christianity and liberalism. They're different. Uh, yeah, his whole <laughs> point is they're not the same. He said you can be liberal. He said you can believe whatever you want to, but historically, and this is where history comes in, you can't call it Christianity. So maybe we should write a book today, Christianity and Social Justice. To kind <laughs> of, uh, you can write it. You yeah, can maybe write so. it. I hadn't <laughs> thought of it that way, but yeah. But Machen, uh, you know, he was at Princeton. He he had studied in Germany. Uh, he's one of the great scholars yeah. that America's ever produced. He was a New Testament scholar at Princeton. He left Princeton because of the liberalism there and founded Westminster Theological Seminary. And, uh, you know, he's just one of those characters. He was also very, I would say, Jeffersonian in his politics. Mm-hmm. He, was a, he was kind of a libertarian uh, in many respects. Uh, and so, yeah, he's just one of those figures that fascinates me. Uh, and you know, he, he was uh, against, um, he had this speech on public education, right? That was very concerned that's about right. that. He, yeah. he, he saw major problems. He saw Christian education as the hope of the country. Yeah. Um, but it, but then he had other views that people kind of scratched their head on. Like he was very much against the teaching of the Bible in public schools uh, because he felt like the Bible was too precious uh, to be taught by people that didn't believe it. Yeah. And so that was his perspective. Now, as a citizen, I don't think you should 
bar the Bible from public schools because of its historical and literary value. As a right. Christian, I do see his point uh, that, you know, yeah. you don't want people being instructed in the faith that don't believe the faith. Yeah. So it's kind of a catch-22, I guess. Any final thoughts on any of the topics that we've covered? Any comments that you want to make uh, in conclusion? Well, I would just say that, um, you know, being at Liberty University has been one of the great privileges of my life. Uh, to be able to be at a university where we get students like you who come and, and study and who are, who love the Lord, who want to be good academics and who strive toward that, but also strive to glorify God in whatever they do. Uh, to be a part of that and to be, mm. be able to engage with students and other faculty members uh, in the life of the mind, but in a place where um, we're we're trying to bring everything under the umbrella of God's authority as we're Amen. supposed to do, yeah. uh, and so that's a privilege that I will always be grateful for. Yeah. So if if you're someone who's listening to this and you're a student or potential student, you're considering history, come to Liberty University, <laughs> and you won't have to deal with social justice or any of the other things. You can just study history. And, uh, and, and from a Christian perspective with wonderful professors. What's the um, address, once again, for the blog, Cautious Enthusiasm? Uh, Cautious Enthusiasm, I think if you just Google that. Uh, it'll, it'll come, come up. up. Yeah, well, well, my book will come up, and then that will come up, and it's, uh, it'll show it as a blog. So. Okay. Well, Dr. Smith, thank you so much for your time. Okay, thank yeah, you. God Enjoy. bless you. You and, too. Uh, until next time, God bless. know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.